church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God, on this festival day of Christ the King, may we again begin the cycle of meditating on incarnation, atonement, resurrection, trinity, these mysteries that lead us onward. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today is the Feast of Christ the King, and that means we are at the close of another year in the church calendar. Next Sunday will be the first Sunday of Advent, Uh, You may have noticed there's already Peppermint Jojo's at Trader Joe's. Uh, The lights are already going up. And next Sunday will be the first day in the liturgical calendar, followed by churches throughout the world and throughout history. Now, of course, this calendar isn't the only way that we mark time. We have academic calendars, fiscal calendars, the great hallmark calendar of American feasts, and the ever-expanding calendar of high holy shopping days. Have you noticed Black Friday gets earlier every year? It's like, it's like Black November now, uh, which is depressing sounding. Calendars tell us something about who we are and what matters to us. The cycle of classes and exams, summer breaks. The cycle of profit and loss and earning reports and tax filing. How do we measure our years? And how does the church calendar invite us to measure our years differently? Well, one interesting thing to me to consider is that Christianity introduced into the world a whole new way of thinking about time. Uh, Before Christianity became the dominant expression of thought in the West, the the dominant conceptualization, conceptualization of time throughout history was cyclical or circular. What is has been before, what is now is only an instantation or participation of what has been before in eternally recurrent patterns, archetypes, or forms. And wisdom is to repeat. Uh, Wisdom is to live in patterns long established. As the teacher says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. But with Christendom, for the first time, the primary conceptualization of time becomes linear. Uh, The goal is not to go backward or to repeat what's been before, because Christianity is stubbornly linked to events that happened at a particular time and a particular place, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And because there's essentially this looking forward element to Christianity, looking forward to the peaceful reign of Christ the King. And so we're now on the kind of timeline, beginning to end, that we as moderns recognize. And in fact, this linear perspective has become so ubiquitous among us that we have a hard time resonating with any other way of thinking about time. 
Now, this linearity of time has in many ways been good because it has introduced to us the idea of progress. Uh, you have to be, be able to believe that things in the future could be different and better than the past in order to try to change things. Only on a linear conceptualization of time could we imagine a world without patriarchy or a world where LGBTQIA persons are safe and respected everywhere or where people of color receive equitable power, wealth, and position in society. Progress is an undeniably good contribution to our understanding of time. But I think there's a downside to this linearity. If it's our only way of seeing our lives, think about it this way. Uh, if your life is the plot of a novel, Right, we've all been in English class, we've drawn the plot of a novel, and you've got you know, the introduction and the setting and rising action and you know, uh, climax and denouement. Like we've got this, this line going on. If that's your life, how do you want it to go? Well, you want it to go up, 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 better, more, resolution, right? Uh, and of course, progress, because of that, can feel relentless to us. Is anyone watching uh, The Great British Baking Show? Yes, yes, yes. No spoilers, no spoilers. I'm not going to spoil the winner. Um, one of the contestants, who I love, Shabira, she says every week, it's a clean slate. It's a clean slate. With all the nervousness in the world, even though she just rocks it every time. It's a clean slate. Because we have to keep performing. What came before doesn't mean that I'm off the hook for doing more, being better, growing, furthering. By contrast, the church calendar preserves an ancient wisdom in its circularity, in this cycle that we follow year by year. Because in it, year by year, we reflect on the core mysteries of the Christian faith. Incarnation, atonement, resurrection, and trinity. The call of linearity is progress, produce, more, better, but the call of circular time is ponder, participate, rest into. These things we consider year by year, incarnation, atonement, resurrection, trinity, these things are already accomplished. They're eternally real, and they do not need us to make them happen. But we have the opportunity to enter them, to participate in their reality, and to let them shape us. So without entirely rejecting the good of progress, I think we could all do with a deep infusion of the eternal. Maybe let's say it this way. On a linear timeline of our universe, God waited 13.8 billion years for the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we might say God doesn't seem to be in much of a hurry. When I was in seminary, uh, one of my professors would ask us, well, how would you describe Jesus? Kind of rhetorical question, but he would take some answers. How, what, one word to describe Jesus. And we would all say, you know, holy or I don't know, whatever. And he would smile and he would say, Jesus was relaxed. Jesus was relaxed. You see, Jesus lived in a kingdom that he knew to be unshakable, that he didn't have to create or make happen. It was. It was God's kingdom, and it was safe. And so he was safe. 
if the most in, important mysteries that Christianity teaches are eternal, meaning they have no beginning or end, they're not in trouble, and your role is simply to participate in their reality, well then, we don't really have to be so anxious about the outcome of our lives. This is the eternal kind of life. In the New Testament, there's two words that get used for life. Uh, bios, which is just you know, normal biology, life. But then there's also zoe. And zoe is this eternal kind of life that God has. It's unending. It's uncrushable. It is life. And this is what the church calendar invites us into. These eternal mysteries that are invitations to slow down and to participate in things that are true and beautiful and good. So the church calendar begins in Advent with the mystery of incarnation. Incarnation, God with us, God among us, God entering human life. And we start with Advent. And in our culture, Advent has gotten sucked into Christmas uh, as Christmas gobbles up all the time around it in all directions. Uh, and so it's four more weeks for decorations and peppermint JoJo's and Christmas music. And trust me, I want four more weeks of that as well. But in the church calendar, Advent is set aside as a time to name our longing. Our longing for God to be with us. Our longing for peace in all of creation. Advent whets our desire for the eternally secure goodness of God's kingdom to come among us here and now. And so Advent cultivates in us a longing to participate in God's secure ways of peace as we light candle by candle by candle by candle. And then the 12 days of Christmas tide. Too important to be celebrated on one day, we join Mary before the Christ child and wonder, how can it be that God is pleased to dwell among us, to take on our flesh? Perhaps our human, enfleshed lives are no hindrance to being caught up in the eternal kind of life. Maybe God can be found right here in the gradual growth and development of human life. Christmas tide invites us to see God with us in the slow, small ordinariness of human life today, here. Well, then by January 6th, most of us have packed up the Christmas decorations. Uh, I'm, I'm a holdout. The tree stays up until Epiphany, January 6th. Uh, but most of us have packed up the Christmas decorations, and then we grumble our way into the dark, long months of winter ahead. But this day, January 6th, begins this, the Epiphany, which is a season dedicated to pondering the mystery that the light of Christ shines on us from the other, from unexpected places. Traditionally, Epiphany is the Feast of the Magi, the wandering foreigners who come to see the Christ child, who stand for all the nations. And God is making a table where all, especially the foreigner, have a seat. And it's from their journeys and faith that we find God revealed. So Epiphany reminds us we don't have to be afraid. God is making a seat for the other. So all work for justice is participating in what is already most true. The moral arc of God's universe does indeed bend toward justice. We don't have to be afraid. So that season is the season of the incarnation. And with the close of Epiphany, we turn to the mystery 
of atonement. Now, atonement is a theological word that points us to all the mysterious ways that God restores us to relationship with ourselves, with one another, and invites us back into the divine life. We have all sorts of metaphors for this. Christ vanquishing death, Christ the new Adam, Christ bearing our sin, Christ restoring union, Christ revealing the infinite mercy of God. But all of these point to a central mystery. God doesn't leave us wandering east of Eden. God pursues and loves us back to life. Beginning with Ash Wednesday, when we resolve to return with all our hearts to this mystery, Lent is a season of 40 days preceding Easter. Traditionally, in this season, we follow the life of Jesus, attending especially to Jesus in the wilderness. We find Christ willingly joining our suffering, our exile, our loneliness, anxiety, and fear. Through the traditional practices of prayer, fasting, and giving, we clear room in ourselves to rest restoration, and renewal. Lent shows us that Christ enters compassionately into our suffering and darkness. So even in our darkness, we are not alone. We are participating in the way of Jesus. And Lent ends with the climactic moment of the Christ story, Holy Week. Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday. This week, we mark each event as Jesus enters Jerusalem breaks bread and wine to give himself to his people, is arrested, mocked, tortured, crucified, and buried. We ponder his resolution, his agonizing. We see him wash feet and feed his betrayer. We see crowds adore him and desert him. And we hear from the tree words of forgiveness and words of surrender. We see our Christ crushed under the wheel of empire, laid in a tomb and ex extinguished. Through Holy Week, we see the unshakable goodness of God. This Christ who would die rather than use violence, who gives himself in order to save even those who betray and desert him, whose way is trustworthy and good. But this isn't the end of the story. On Easter Sunday, we rise to celebration and joy as we proclaim, He is risen, He is risen indeed. And so Eastertide, a season of seven weeks beginning with Easter Sunday, proclaims that atonement is accomplished, and we turn to the Christian mystery of resurrection. Now, on the one hand, resurrection is a vindication of the way of Jesus. Against an empire that makes peace through violence, Christ makes peace through self-giving. Against an empire that wields power for domination, Christ wields power for restoration and mercy. The empire does its best to stamp out the radical way of Jesus, but this life is too truly life, Zoe, to be crushed. Resurrection is the vindicating marker that Jesus' ways do indeed make for life and flourishing. But more than that, resurrection is a mystery that embraces every particle and every person, every movement and every moment. Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation because Easter tells us that what God intends for all that exists is not lost, but restoration, not destruction, but renewal. Easter is the mystery that what exists matters, not just for a moment, but forever. Because what steps out of the tomb on Easter morning is not just one resurrected individual, but the promise of eternal 
uh, I'm sorry, promise of uh, that physical creation is so treasured by the divine life that it will not be abandoned or lost. In this sense, Easter is about much more than human life after death. It's no accident that Jesus steps out into his first appearance after the resurrection in a garden, because Easter is an ecological celebration. For us in the Northern Hemisphere, it's appropriate that it falls at the beginning of spring as new life is bursting forth everywhere, for it celebrates that God intends the flourishing of life. The divine is not content to allow death to be the final word. See, Jesus says at the close of Revelation, I am making all things new. So Easter cultivates in us delighted trust in Jesus whose ways of peace make for life, and who pulls all creation into life with him, who treasures every last bit of creation. This cycle, incarnation, atonement, resurrection, uh, forms one half of the church calendar. And then the other half is given over to what we call, and are ending this week, ordinary time. And while that name comes from numbers, ordinals, uh, because the numbers of that calendar are numbered, or the weeks of that calendar are numbered, uh, ordinary has become a word over time that means for us normal, meh, you know, just ordinary. And that's fitting as well because the ordinary time is a, is a mystery of a very different sort than the others. Uh, we call those first three seasons uh, the high church calendar because there's this drama of Jesus's birth and life and death and resurrection. Uh, but the rest of the church calendar is given over to something much quieter, something more subtle, and something that takes a lifetime to live into. Ordinary time turns our eyes to the mystery of Trinity, it begins with Pentecost Sunday, the celebration of God's Spirit coming to dwell in the church, and then Trinity Sunday, and it closes today, the Christ the King Sunday. And the long stretch of Sundays in between are traditionally full of saint days. We remember everyone from Mary and the disciples, uh, St. Francis and St. Teresa of Avila, Martin Luther King Jr. and Dorothy Day. And this is really quite to the point for while Trinity, Trinity is often presented to us as this clear hierarchical doctrine, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's these uh, marvelous statues. It's actually one in the Portland Art Museum. It's broken, but you can still see. Uh, and, and the way they are constructed, it's, it's like three little Russian nesting dolls. And you've got big God and medium Jesus and little spirit, which is kind of like Goldilocks. Like, you know, this God is too big. This God is too little. This Jesus is just right. Um, <laughs> So you've got these, these hierarchical images of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But in reality, the church has always been wrestling with how best to understand the mystery of Trinity. And today, under the teaching of theologians who are women and people of color particularly, we are reimagining Trinity. Not as hierarchy, but as relationship. Not as a vertical line, but as a circle. Not as fixed roles, but as a dance, a dance of mutual love. What Trinity points to is this, God is love, which means that God is relationship. The divine life is not lonely, but delighted. The most deep, true reality of existence is not a singular, unblinking point. 
but a dynamic, moving, giving, and relational energy. Reality is not hierarchical, but mutual, sharing, and giving. Our words here are metaphorical at best, because Trinity is not the kind of thing we can cash out in precise terms. But from its earliest days, the church began to ponder God's relationality. And most importantly, the invitation extended to humanity that we could join the triune dance. And so in ordinary time, we celebrate the lives of normal humans, just like us, who have let themselves be drawn into the self-giving divine dance and who have invited others to join as well. And so ordinary time moves us into a dance with our God who truly delights in sharing power, knowing and being known, who's not way out there, but is right here, who is love and dwells in love. And so we close the cycle again. Incarnation, atonement, resurrection, trinity. These aren't doctrines that we hold or we grasp, that we manage or put in books. These are mysteries that hold us. We cycle them year by year, and we let them slowly shift our experience of divinity, our imagination of power, our longing for justice and peace. We never fully understand these mysteries because there's always more to ponder, and so our calendar keeps us near to them, weaving them into our very bones. I wonder if we can taste the difference of this way of marking time. You know, we all have ways of narrating the story of our lives. Are we nearer or further from who we want to be this year? Is the trend of our story up, down, stagnant, backward? Are we getting there? Are we getting anywhere? Are we falling away? Did we lose the plot entirely? Maybe we hold all of us some versions of those narratives about ourselves today. But perhaps alongside those questions and hopes and anxieties, the cycle of the church calendar can quietly, continually invite us to participate in these eternal mysteries. Because this calendar reminds us that the most important realities are unshakably eternal. And they're not in trouble. Incarnation's not in trouble. Atonement doesn't need you to make it happen. Resurrection is complete, and Trinity is among us. God's delight in human bodies and human lives, the closeness of God to us in our darkness, the victory of love and life over all forms of death, belonging and delight in the triune dance, these are not things we have to make happen or be good enough to enter. They just are. And so, year by year, we ponder them. And year by year, we can breathe and relax into them. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, 
or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.